from Silicon Valley, the heart of startup land. It's Getting to Alpha, the show about creating innovative, compelling experiences that people love. And now, here's your host, game designer, entrepreneur, and startup coach, Amy Jo Kim. Vinayak Joglakar is a serial entrepreneur from Pune, India. He started multiple companies in software product development and recruitment, and he's had two successful exits. Now, while most people prefer the security of a regular job, Vinayak feels most comfortable living on the edge. I dream a lot, and there's no point just dreaming and not doing anything about it. So I feel uncomfortable when I see that I'm just dreaming and not putting any of my plans in action. Whether I succeed or I fail, it doesn't matter. I need to keep doing it. Vinayak is deeply entrepreneurial. Join me as we trace his career and explore how he used game thinking to drive retention in SaaS products. Welcome, Vinayak. Thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me here. It's a pleasure. I'm really excited to hear about your journey in entrepreneurship. I know it's been a long road and a really interesting one. So let's get started with briefly just say your name and your position and where you work. Yeah. So I'm Vinayak Joglaker and I'm currently I'm a serial entrepreneur. I've had two exits and I'm in the process of building my third entrepreneurial venture. Currently, I'm the CTO and head of India operations at a company called Accelerate. It's been a journey where I have seen various stages of the life cycle of an entrepreneurial venture. So this is one of those stages where the transition is happening from a $100 million company back to zero to become an entrepreneur again. It just can't stop. Uh, hopefully. And it, uh, it definitely, I, I have full intention of not letting it stop. What is it that drives you to want to leave comfort and go off and go into uncertainty? I'm very comfortable doing what I'm doing. In fact, I feel very uneasy and uncomfortable if I'm not doing what I'm doing. So it's my nature or it's the way I'm built or whatever. You can blame it on anything, but that's the way I am. So for you, comfort means entrepreneurial journey. Yeah, I'm very comfortable because I dream a lot and there's no point just dreaming and not doing anything about it. So I feel uncomfortable when I see that I'm just dreaming and not putting any of my plans in action. Whether I succeed or I fail, it doesn't matter, but I need to keep doing it. That's really interesting. So let's yeah. wind it all the way back. And talk about how you first got involved in tech and entrepreneurship. So what drew you toward tech? And then how did you start moving toward being an entrepreneur? Yeah, it started way back. I don't know, uh, many of the people who are hearing this conversation might not have been born in 1983 when it started. So in 1983, I was working for a Swedish company. It was called the Electronic Data Processing Department or EDP. And I had a bright idea that I could use computers to exchange information between suppliers and providers of services. I thought it was a very bright idea and I just decided to move on and I resigned from my job and I started my entrepreneurial then. And then what company did you form? 
So that time I started a company by the name Informex. What I have today is a evolved form of that company. And I got into recruitment of professionals using exchange of information about professionals, about their careers and resumes with job descriptions on the computer. And those days, it was a very novel thing. It was like a, what you can call a microcomputer, which had, if I remember correctly, 512 KB of memory, which is, you can't even imagine it. You, your, your watch has wow. more memory than that. So that's how it started. I was very keenly interested in technology and training people. So around 2000, realized that we need to have more trained people that was the Y2K time when we needed more people. So I started training people. I got myself certified and I used to conduct training in Java. It was a thing where several hundred people who got trained in that time are still around in the industry. About 20 of them are currently working for Accelerate. I have a large population of students who walked their first few steps with me. And that's where I got hooked to technology. So then tell us about the SinnerZip journey, how you started and grew SinnerZip and then how you came to sell it to Accelerate. Yeah, SinnerZip was born from a need to serve the unmet need in the market for smaller enterprises or smaller startups to do or take advantage of the economy as well as the ability to spin up teams quickly in India. This option was open only to larger corporations and smaller companies were not served. That was an unmet need for them. So myself and El Hens, who was my partner, we decided that let's serve this unmet need and that is how it started. And prior to that, let me step back a couple of years. Around 2002, Hemant had joined a previous venture of ours, which was a dashboard for supply chain, which is a product which, we, which is still in some form in existence. It is called Intercoms. The name of the company is Intercoms. He joined that company as the chief operating officer. I was the chief technology officer there. This company still operates out of Dallas, Texas. But a couple of years later, we realized that this product is going to take a little longer than we thought. And we decided to exit that and started Sinner in 2004. So you did a pivot. It was a case where we were not getting enough return on our investment. We had got the funding, but we had burnt out almost all the cash and the times were not good. So we had to look for options. And that's when we decided that, okay, this would be a good option. That's how it got started. It was not really a pivot because uh, that company still exists. So they didn't really change their focus. They continue what they're doing. And we exited that company and we started something new. So that's when it started in 2004. And then what happened? Yeah, so 2004, Agile was just a term that we had heard about. And our first customer out of Houston, it was a company that was managing mobile invoices for large corporations like Soft and Pepsi. 
they decided to go in for the agile way of doing things and they asked us whether we could do it for them and i had read the book so i said yeah i know about it but i was not like we had never practiced it it was just like a bookish kind of knowledge at that point of time but we said yes let's give it a shot anyways we didn't have any other options so our first client demanded that we follow the agile way of doing things and that worked very well for us because from 2004 onwards we saw that agile became mainstream over the next 5 to 10 years and we rode that bandwagon that helped us getting to the next level and we grew the company from 0 to 20 million in the next 15 years or so and so you were basically spinning up teams and helping small and medium sized businesses deliver their products is that correct absolutely that what we call as a scrum team which is a typically a 5 to 7 member team with cross functional team with all the roles including quality and development etc so we were doing that and we grew from an organization which had just three people to start with to 500 in these years in 15 years or so so it was it was a good stint i would say i loved it i enjoyed it because mentoring people training people was always close to my heart and i loved doing technology so that was something that i did all the way for the for most of the 15 years when hemant was handling all the client facing role basically getting the business development sales and marketing so i was very lucky to have him as a partner who took care of the ongoing flow of business and i took care of the ongoing flow of delivery and it was challenging because even today it's not easy to get good talent my focus and my passion has been to acquire and nurture talent i loved it and i did my part of the partnership so it seems to have worked because we had a successful exit at the end of 17 years in 2020 tell us the story of that exit how did it come to be how did you first make the connection and then figure out that it was a win-win situation yeah so we went about it very systematically so it was around 2019 that we thought that we should be looking at options because we are getting a lot of incoming inbound interest from acquirers who were either strategic or pe firms and all that but instead of doing it randomly we said that okay let's appoint a sales side investment banker so we looked at three or four different investment bankers we systematically compared them we had interviews with them and finally selected one out of those and then we let the investment banker run the process and they have a very systematic process they prepare a kind of brochure they send it out to about 700 800 possible acquirers and then they get lois and there are various stages through which you and then you zero down onto the mantra there is never go for a single thing or interested party you should always have two or three people or three two or three firms that are interested in acquiring your firm so that you can get a better deal by negotiating with them and essentially there should be some competition and market making that should happen 
So that's what we did using the private equity firm that finally acquired us, or rather using the merchant banking or investment banker that we had. And the investment banking firm helped us to zero down on one private equity firm that finally acquired us. So the private equity firm acquired you? Yeah. Not what is Accelerate a private equity firm? No, Accelerate is merged entity. So the private equity firm typically as is a food chain where they put together a number of smaller companies, then they in turn make a bigger company out of those smaller companies and by integrating them or merging them. So that's what they were doing. And we were 20 million. And there was another company that was $20 million. So they merged these two entities and called it Accelerate. And we were 40 then. And this year we are more than 56. And it's going to be like $70 million 2023. And very soon it's going to go to $100 million. And then very soon, I think maybe in a year or so, there'll be another interested acquirer who would acquire this entity. So... That's how it goes on, right? It's very interesting. I did not know that. But what you're talking about is what I've often heard in the games industry called a roll-up. Yeah, which it's is, exactly. It's a roll-up. It's a roll-up. Okay, uh, got it. In a roll-up, uh, you, you, need to have, you need to have companies that are having some level of synergy. We, uh, Synerzip as a company, had at its core technology, and we were very horizontally focused. We had machine learning, we have artificial intelligence, we have blockchain. So essentially you name a technology and we would have expertise in that. And when we merged with the other half, which was vertically focused, so that healthcare, insured tech, tech. So it was a merger of two very synergistic firms, which were engaged in Similar businesses, but one was vertically focused and the other was horizontally focused. And that's why it grew from where it was to where it is today. That's really interesting. Yeah. And it's all through private acquisitions. None of this involves an IPO. Yeah. See, we are two at this stage, I would say that at a 50, 70 million dollars, it's like too small for an IPO. So we would, and IPO being a different kind of thing that happens at a much higher level in the food chain, right? Probably there'll be one or two more acquisitions before it becomes big enough to become a candidate for an IPO. Got it. A million dollars, it's, it's way below the radar scope of bankers who would take it to an IPO. So how much of the banking relationships and et cetera is inside of India versus outside? Are you negotiating with people outside India or mostly inside? Mostly in the U.S. All our investment banking, legal, and most of it happens in the United States. We are only doing the delivery from India, but that's a lot because out of now 1,200 odd People who work for Accelerate, 1,100 people are working out of India. Oh. So it's a, so when it comes to delivery, when it comes to even pre-sales, uh, inside sales, a lot of that, even marketing, a lot of that happens in India. But when it comes to negotiations and when it comes to an acquisition or m and activity, all the investment bankers and all the 
private equity firms are mostly based out of the US. Interesting. So how much can you tell us about your new ideas? Yeah, this is something which I'm contemplating and I have been, you know that very well because I was a part of your program on game thinking. There are things that we tried and they worked pretty well. One of the things that has stuck is a kind of reward program. Employees or end users get hooked to do something or they exhibit a behavior repetitively because they're liking it or they get hooked to it. For example, we are having one program where we are crowdsourcing tagging. So for machine learning, as you are required to do some kind of training set. Now for training machine learning algorithm to recognize named entities, etc., we need to have some human beings initially tag certain text with certain annotations. Now, this can be done or this can be crowdsourced. Now, we have gamified it using the fundamentals which I learned in the Getting to Alpha program, wherein when you tag it, immediately you get a reward and that reward is visible to you in the form of some points which can be converted or redeemed to dollars. So what we observed, and this is something that we have been tracking regularly, that the people who are doing the tagging, they are continuously doing their tagging, but every 15 minutes or every half an hour or so, they would go and check how many points have accrued in their money bag. So it's a kind of a core loop wherein they are hooked to it. They do the needed activity they, they, that triggers their craving to make more money or get more points. Then they do the activity and then they go and check that whether they have achieved what they have. So we use the same fundamental to motivate recruiters wherein for every action that a recruiter does, whether it is sending out a, an email or whether it is setting up an interview or whether it is actually having a candidate join for everything, for every change of state, we have some points that are assigned to the recruiter and those points go into his money bag. And we saw the same thing again, that recruiters, they would do their daily activities and they would keep accumulating points. But they keep checking that, hey, where am I? Okay, I need to make more. Maybe internally they have some target in their mind that I need to make so much today. And then they keep working, keep going at it and keep checking their money back to see. So that triggered this idea that we are currently working on, wherein we want to combine this core loop with smart contracts, wherein Individuals would instantaneously get paid for executing some tasks which are contracted, which are, so currently what we are doing is really small in terms of value, whether it is setting up an interview or whether it is tagging a word, those are really, you can say micro transactions, but we plan to take it to the next level by having bigger transactions wherein one would execute a small contract wherein one would deliver something like a piece of working software and for that activity for checking in the code and getting it past the quality assurance 
one would get paid uh, by uh, getting a co smart contract triggered and it would be all based sanctified on a blockchain so that's the next level that we are going to so where uh, we are planning to it starts with building a marketplace of talent where we are tokenizing talent because a resume or a talent needs to be tokenized first for an individual to be able to enter into a smart contract with a company so companies can now enter into smart contracts with the individual professionals instead of going through large companies so cross-border payments are possible now using smart contracts in india for example we are having central bank digital currency as soon as we are able to do this and as soon as the government comes with the retail program for cbdc which is likely to happen in a month or so We'll be having smart contracts which could get triggered when you check in the code. Someone sitting in the US would look at it and certify it and make payment, a cross-border payment, which would directly go into the wallet of an Indian developer. That's a really interesting vision. And I did not know that India was releasing a centralized digital currency. Can you tell us a little more about that? That's actually so it is that's kind of bearing the lead that's big news yeah yeah the reserve bank of india which is like your fed has already launched the digital currency central bank digital currency and they are currently trying it out with eight banks only for bigger wholesale interbank transactions and within 30 days they have said that it would become available for retail transactions so India has a very good system of making smaller payments using mobile phones, which is one of the biggest systems in the world where you can do transactions of small denominations without having to pay any fees to the bank. The same fundamental has been extended to the CBDC and this would be available to individuals to transact with their counterparts in the US. Okay, so digital currencies, there's lots of, is this a stable coin? What is, no, no, what kind of digital currency is this? So this is just like a, an Indian rupee. So it's pegged uh, to the rupee? Yeah, it is a okay. rupee. It is not pegged to the rupee. It is a rupee. Okay, it is a rupee on the blockchain, which can be used on smart contracts. So it is, it does Is it Ethereum based? It is it is based on what they call as distributed ledger technology, DLT. They have not given which kind of DLT they are using. Probably they have, the government oh. has its own, own blockchain. They would not use any chain other than their own. Okay. They're spinning up their own chain, which everybody yeah. does. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. they're doing digital currency and it is the rupee. It's not pegged to the rupee. Yeah, it is the rupee. So you can just buy your grocery with it. Okay. You don't need to go to an exchange like Coinbase to exchange it to a real currency. It is the fiat currency. How will you buy your grocery with it? Walk me through that. Yeah. So you have it on your mobile phone in your wallet. You walk into oh, a shop. Like at, you... Okay. So it's on your mobile yeah, and in your mobile. wallet, and then it just works. Yeah, it just, work, it just works like any other payment system. This is something which is exciting. And what is even more exciting is because of the pandemic, most of 
the workforce, the knowledge workers are now working from home. And there's a realization that there is not much value that is added by intermediaries because a professional is saying that, look, this is my home, this is my computer, my electricity, my internet, and my brain. Okay, and I'm doing interesting work for a client and the client is saying the same thing. Look, I'm paying $6,000, but this gentleman sitting across is just getting $3,000 out of that. So what's going on here? So they are questioning the value that is being added by the intermediary organizations because they don't anymore need the infrastructure or the office or any of that right? This is going to be different going forward because it's the recording companies struggling with the streaming music companies. Same way recording companies were made obsolete by the streaming music companies. This is somewhat similar to that where there is a lot of disintermediation that's going to happen in this industry because knowledge workers would no longer need intermediaries to manage the infrastructure because most of it is virtual. Wow. That's, yeah, that's, that's now I understand, now I understand why you've been dreaming and why you're launching something new. Yeah. So I'm pretty excited about it. Of course, it's going to be very difficult because you're up against large companies who are established and there are many other people who must be thinking the way I'm thinking. So there's going to be competition and there's going to be resistance, but that's fun. I enjoy it. Because you're an entrepreneur. Yeah. <laughs> I want to wind it back real quick and talk about lean, agile and game thinking, which mm. you knew is getting to alpha. And by the way, this podcast we're recording mm. for is still called getting to alpha because I've been running it ever since then. And right. it's really the same idea, which is getting to alpha, which is validating your ideas, right? Mm -hmm. So one of the things that's really fascinating about your history is the way you jump on trends, sometimes mm -hmm. by accident, sometimes on purpose, right? Mm -hmm. Lean Agile was a trend that you jumped on early and that was really good for your company and that was really smart. Right. So let's talk about what really works about Lean Agile, what was transformative and positive for you in a nutshell, maybe just a few things, but then Let's talk about what didn't work about Lean Agile, what the limitations were that led you to looking for something else. Yes, the concept of Lean Agile was light because there are a couple of things that we were thinking of doing. in. So one of them was to move up the value chain by not only telling how software should be developed or how products should be built, but moving up the value chain by advising our clients on what to build. Now, when it comes to that, we need to back it up with user experience, design, research, and product management, and all those things, all those roles need to be there as a part of the cross-functional team. And that's what used to be hard because you would have large companies doing frog design or splice of lime and the design studios, which where you have to spend millions to get your user experience design done. That was the picture then. And 
when we looked at lean agile, he said, okay, this is something that we don't need to really invest millions. You can do it the lean way and we can experiment and do small steps and do continue, continued or you can say iterative way of learning and building things, showcasing things, getting feedback from the client. So it all appealed to us because in agile, we are already doing it in a way where we were testing it and then getting the feedback from the QA or the testers and using that feedback to improve upon it. We are taking it one step further. Now we're getting the feedback directly from the market and then using that feedback to use it. So it is like moving up the value chain. And that's what excited us about Lean Agile. Now, the main challenge that we faced in that is that clients particularly, they don't like to give away their practices or their belief systems. You always had this belief system that, okay, we will tell you what to do and you guys just do what we tell you to do. Okay. Don't tell us what we should be doing. So that's the big resistance that we had to overcome, that we had to prove that, look, this works, that we do user research. We systematically, we have a way of building a model where you can follow that model and then we can test it out. We can play test it in the hands of the end user and then at a very low fidelity, low cost way of doing things in a lean agile way, we can work it out. But it took a lot of effort. Even today, we are trying to sell it to many of our clients. It's not an easy thing. People like to believe that they know what they want. And many times that's not true. Yeah. Listening to you gives me PTSD. <laughs> Just the, when a client thinks they know what they want and you see that they very well might be wrong and maybe you do the research and the research shows you they're wrong, Yeah. but the client doesn't want to hear that. Yeah. So to your question, the main challenge in Lean Agile is that where you can't really substitute the client's right, the customer's right to decide what should be built. So there have been... And I have a lot of stories where we have built exactly what should not be built and got paid for it. And we were, we were not very happy with it, but that was the business that we were in. We were not supposed to ask questions. We were supposed to just execute and deliver what we were asked to deliver. So we just did that. And knowing very well that it's all going down the tube. So I've seen millions going down the tube that way in many organizations where they didn't listen or pay heed to our advice, but they decided to go ahead and do what they wanted to. Yeah, it's a lot of the problems that get solved with lean also expose bad decision-making and bad thinking. And a lot of times people are very resistant to changing. And I think if we fast forward to now, I think there's overall more acceptance but the point you're really making is that you're hired with a certain expectation. And if you violate that expectation, there's a lot of friction. When you are delivering software from India, there is always this luggage that we come with, right? With reputation of Indian firms, some of them doing what they did, which was not very good, which used to, uh, as a deterrent for the North American clients, to venture into listening to what our advice was. And I don't blame them for that because they've heard horror stories from others. I don't say that 
someone was doing something deliberately it was they were just acting based on their prior experience and they were just being cautious and they were doing what they thought was the best in the interest of their companies building great products is really hard <laughs> it just is so what were the problems you were looking to solve when you got involved in our programs honestly i wanted to see how to get the saas model to work because before that it was different we decided that we should make a full transition to the lean way of doing things we were thinking about transition from the traditional model to saas model so the traditional software products were used on a licensing model per user license or whatever be the license per server license to software as a service model where you were really charging per use and there was this fear that you would lose subscriptions or you would use users if even if the management blesses the product and they have signed a contract if the end users don't use the product you're not going to get any revenue out of that so it was becoming increasingly important for software products to focus on the end user for the saas model to become successful i thought about having some way of getting the end users hooked that continuity is very important that's when we got involved into the game thinking way of doing things and it paid off there are several products where i can say that they achieved continued usage because we build the way your game thinking system advises basically focus shifted to the end user right and what was going on in getting the right behavior from the end user to answer your question that's the bridge between what we were doing earlier in the lean startup and what we started doing with game thinking so it was really retention you were looking for something that would help you create software that was designed for retention retention of end users so the focus shifted from getting the deal signed at the ceo level to the end user loving what you are building so the focus shifted so tell me about the resumex nft marketplace and how you look at it through this lens yeah so tokenizing any asset and resume is a digital asset which is of high value to an individual professional and then allowing the allowing it to be used for transactions is the idea here we are very excited about it so what we are doing is we are building a marketplace where individual professionals would be able to tokenize their talent or digitize resumes and once they are tokenized on the blockchain they would be getting some kind of currency which is called caliber and as the name suggests it the caliber represents the total experience and knowledge and skill level of the individual professional in number or in currency and this professional can use that caliber to stake on other professionals this is this can't be converted to any cash but it can only be used for staking on to other professionals this is a community of people who are professionals who admire other professionals by staking their caliber on the other professionals and this community 
is what we call as the NFT marketplace. Companies who are looking to build products or to get work done can execute smart contracts with individuals who are offering their services on this NFT marketplace. And when that transaction happens, others who have staked their caliber on the professional who receives the proceeds of the transaction would also get rewarded. So there is always this sharing of the reward that would be received between professionals. And this, we have tried it out. It works very well and professionals are extremely happy with it because it gives instant cross-border transaction. It makes it possible, as I was mentioning earlier. And that is something which kind of gives them a position where they feel that they are in control of things, that they are self-sufficient in charge of their own destiny, where they can work with North American clients. So this could very well be any international provider of services or developer or a QA or Anyone who is doing some knowledge work, a knowledge worker can engage with internationally with any other company or a distributed autonomous organization such as a DAO and get paid for their work. So that's the broad idea. And there, the pandemic has helped, as I was mentioning earlier, because companies are finding that people are working from home and People are finding that there's a lot of scope for doing additional work or side projects or moonlighting, if you will. So that needs to be more or less systematized or brought into a more transparent way of doing it instead of doing it in a stealthy way. So this also offers a transparent way or a more official way of doing what you can call as moonlighting. So individuals can engage on a blockchain with on pre-approved products, which are blessed by their company and develop their own professional skills there. So there are multiple ways in which smart contracts can be used to engage individuals in this marketplace. And all the rewards that come to them will be shared between them and the people who have staked their caliber on them. How does staking work? Because what if somebody doesn't want to accept your stake? Is it a two-way transaction or can you just stake and nobody, they can't refuse it? So the people who stake don't get a whole lot. They get about some percentage, which is something which is controllable. An individual may just say that he would reserve only 10% of the proceeds or 5% of the proceeds for this people who are staking and, or he may say 0% for all, you know, in which case nobody would stake on that individual professional. They can turn the knob left or right, depending on what their appetite is and what willingness to forgo their earnings. But what we have seen is that professionals would want to share because this is something which is mutual, which is both ways. So when you're allowing someone to stake, someone else will also allow you to stake. So this is something where it's a mutual admiration kind of thing. So professionals engage in that a lot so that both share a part of their rewards with each other. So that's more like what is happening today uh, based on what our studies show. Of course, this is something which, again, we have done a little bit of beta testing 
based on that we think that there is a networking effect there where there's no point just having caliber in your wallet unless you stake it you're not going to earn anything out of it so there is always this tendency to find someone on whom you can stake that caliber and going out to find someone from your network or from your company or from your professional group always helps interesting and is this something that you're working on or something that exists right now in the real world it is something that is in the form of a white paper and a model that works in its 0.0 kind of version but very soon as soon as the digital currency central bank digital currency opens up which is likely to happen in next 30 days or so we would start testing it in production maybe as with some alpha users and maybe in a couple of months we would start our beta program so it sounds like overall you're developing various versions of play to earn or work to earn mechanisms is that right absolutely yeah yeah and play to earn has a lot of issues like well established issues but it really doesn't sound like any of this is a game but it's gamified when we have work where you're learning so what i learned in the going uh, getting to alpha program was you derive pleasure out learning the fun comes out of getting to the next level or learning something just like in a game you go to the next level right so in your professional career if you are learning something and it is helping you earn at the same time and this is not like just some funny money it's real money right that gets people to behave in a way that engages them that gets them hooked and they do the same thing repetitively again and again because they it is not only engaging but it is rewarding financially rewarding right it's one kind of reward you will also see compulsive behavior like that when it's not financially rewarded in like health certain healthcare apps or certainly certain games but the reason i said play to earn work turn is that all the systems you're describing are systems where you want to drive that core loop and that user journey around mm-hmm. a combination of learning and earning yes and earning where it is so when you play a game there is a level of uncertainty whereas in the case of a smart contract it is more certain that your certain behavior is definitely going to get you that reward that is different than game where there's not as much dopamine or shot that you get out of this because in game there is a level of uncertainty where you're not sure whether you're going to win or not so that that gives you that kick when you win right because you are not sure till the last minute and then you win but in case of smart contracts it's not like as gamified as you think it is there's a level of certainty there that after you do certain thing you're going to get that reward and it's cast in stone it's a program so there's no way it can change so to that extent it is wow so You kind of blew my mind today. It's really exciting to hear about what you're thinking, all the changes going on in India and Vinayak you drop so many gems about what's important in entrepreneurship like your story about finding the right partner who handled certain things while you handled others. That's so important and noticing trends, noticing what's happening, noticing what's changing and really leaning into it. instead of backing away from it that seems to be a theme yeah 
sometimes they say that i am ahead of my time so that is something that i need to continuously be cautious about holding back and not going too far ahead yes yes what were the concepts and the techniques that you took away from your experience with getting to alpha and game thinking that you still use what really stuck with you first is that comes to my mind is koru getting it right is not easy it takes years but once you get it right it works it works like a charm it is self perpetuating and that is something which is a fantastic concept that i learned second thing and this was again a great learning is listening to your first few super fans so i used to think that it would be like you know i was always thinking of all the aco and digital marketing hype that was going on taking an idea big and doing mass marketing and all that but what really helped was and this i learned from the program was listening to your first few super fans and low risk clients so it was low risk kind of situation but valuable feedback there's a lot of learning and that is the second concept that helped me and third one is the user journey end user journey whenever we designed we used to think of starting onboarding right like how to onboard users now that is not important right now you may be able to onboard a user but if the user doesn't stay for more than a week what's the use so what the user does on day 21 is where one starts first so that concept was very important for us that don't bother about onboarding when we are starting first start with getting your concepts right whether the product market fit is there whether the problem solution fit is there on the problem that you are trying to solve whether it is getting solved that is more important than whether you are able to onboard users successfully or not that was a third learning and these things have stuck on this was a great learning that's great to hear i love the way you succinctly express that and i'm thinking back to when we had brunch by the pool in mumbai at the taj yes. and just how delightful it is to hang out and talk to you every time i get to hang out with you yeah you expand my thinking and it's really stimulating and i can't yeah. wait to follow up and talk more about what's going on in India because that's I just I didn't know that was happening and that just opened so much up and once again there you are ahead yeah. of the curve. Thank you. Thank you for all the words of appreciation. Anyway, thank you so much. It's been a total pleasure. Have a good day. Thanks for listening to Getting to Alpha with Amy Jo Kim. The shows that help you innovate faster and smarter. Be sure to check out our website, gettingtoalpha.com. That's getting2alpha.com for more great resources and podcast episodes.